Welcome to the Hemp Empowerment Project. We're your hosts, Anthony and Nicole Lucido. Our goal is to share the amazing opportunities within the hemp industry and how it can benefit your life. Today we have with us Michael Patterson. He is an internationally recognized speaker, business consultant, published author, podcaster on industrial hemp, and a board member in multiple organizations. So Michael, uh, you were shipping industrial hemp flour across foreign borders. Uh, What could go wrong? Well, we've already done it. (laughs) (laughs) What could go wrong? So a lot of things can go wrong, but the number one issue is people shipping their industrial hemp flour overseas or even industrial hemp uh, biomass is the laboratory equipment used overseas typically is not sensitive enough to pick up the difference between 0.2% THC or 0.3 or 0.4. So we have found that um, we have kind of gotten out of shipping industrial hemp flour mainly for CBD use for smoking. Um, That's what it's coming big in Europe because um, we would usually send over one kilogram samples and they would get confiscated in customs and the customs officers would never respond to us saying what the COA was or the lab report was. They just automatically um, uh, say it's illegal. And a lot of that is because of the machinery that they use. It just can't pick up the differences of that, that small in nature with THC. Oh, interesting. So are they not uh, having a lot of uh, smokable flour with low THC content in those areas? Well, what they're doing is they're working, they're doing a workaround. So if you ship it into Switzerland, Switzerland has a 1.0% THC um, maximum. So you can ship your hemp flour through Switzerland. And for the listeners who are not aware Switzerland is not technically part of the EU, but they Mm. follow all the EU rules So you can ship it into Switzerland, and then the customer in Europe can physically come pick it up in Switzerland, and then it's it's the customer's problem, basically. Um, So that is something that that we know other companies have done. We actually just started a division of a joint venture company that I work with called MGMC Pharma Group. We just opened up a division in Switzerland primarily for THC and medical cannabis products, but we're looking to potentially being able to start shipping in hemp flour later this year because if we already have a contract in Switzerland or a company in Switzerland, we can ship to ourselves and then kind of figure it out that way. Right. Neat. Now, how hard was it to get these businesses up and running in the EU or in Switzerland? Oh, great question. So um, we worked through a, a law firm in Switzerland, and what we thought was going to take one month took six months. Mm. So a lot of the challenges are since hemp and, and, and our, our company, we were looking to do a, a pharmaceutical organization. So what we see on the medical cannabis side is a lot different than the industrial hemp. But setting it up as a pharmaceutical company in Europe took a lot longer than even our attorneys had imagined. But we actually just got it uh, established and registered um, as of yesterday, which is awesome. So we, we kind of crossed that hurdle. But, yeah, it was extremely difficult. That's the beauty of having um, team members all around the world because I'm the, the president of MGMC Pharma Group, so I handle a lot of the cannabis side. But, again, my background is healthcare. It's not law. And so that's where you have to depend and trust the, the team that you hire to get those types of things completed. Yeah, absolutely. Well, c- congratulations on getting that, getting that approved yesterday. That's got to be pretty exciting. Yeah, it's, it's exciting. But now we got to get all the, uh, all the, the contracts together 
to be able to to move it forward. So a lot of the issues in Europe are they have to wait till you have a company in Europe, and then you're eligible to potentially get a lot of supply contracts. And so that's what we've been working on for months. And so now our goal is is to start securing those supply contracts. And then what we do is we have cultivation. Uh, we will have cultivation capacity in Europe, but we primarily have our cultivation capacity in Africa in a country called Lesotho. Um, if you're unfamiliar, Lesotho is a little country inside of South Africa. It's actually landlocked, and our facility there is the former canopy growth facility. Um, canopy mm-hmm. growth pulled out due to a business decision back in 2020 in April, and they pulled out of Africa and Latin America. So we were able to come in um, right uh, after they left and sign a, a long-term lease to their facility, which is a world-renowned facility that we didn't have to really pay for, which is great. <laughs> nice. Yeah. So what other con- so you, you're working out of South Africa and Switzerland now. Are there other countries that you're starting to expand into or thinking about it? So currently, well, currently we ship uh, THC and CBD-based medical uh, crude, primarily crude and starter material. Okay. And then we ship that into Australia, and we also ship it into Europe. And our plan is to be able to become the OPEC of cannabis oil for medical cannabis because we feel Africa is a great place to do large-scale production because of the cost of production, of course. And then we want to build up enough of primarily uh, THC oil so when America goes legal with recreational or medical cannabis or whatever at the federal level, we want to prepare the value chain to be able to support the American economy because not right now, 90% of all legal sales of, of cannabis are in the United States. Mm-hmm. Wow. So what, what are you, you know, you're doing stuff abroad. What, is, what are you doing here in the U.S.? We, uh, in the United States currently, we are working on creating the world's largest hemp and cannabis research center, similar mm-hmm. to a Silicon Valley, which would be located in near Fort Pierce, Florida. If you're unfamiliar, Fort Pierce is about one hour north of West Palm Beach with the goal of creating a new uh, research hub for the planet to really discover all the benefits and and work out all the challenges with medical cannabis, but primarily for industrial hemp because we feel industrial hemp industry globally will probably be 10 to 20 times bigger than the medical cannabis industry. Yep. And then what, what kind of research are you thinking about on the industrial hemp side? Um, it's a great question. So currently the location we're looking at is a uh, agricultural research park and okay. called the Treasure Coast Research Park. And they have two members. They have the USDA and they have the University of Florida Agricultural Program. Uh, so what we're looking to do is expand into that. There's an extra 800 acres that have never been uh, used in this park. So our goal is to bring in companies that want to study um, large-scale production. For example, if you want to discover the, the quickest way and the best way to make hempcrete to where it can be you know, mold-resistant, mildew-resistant, and create that formula, something like that. Also, we're looking to do research with using um, hemp biofuels to be able to create gasoline and oil and all these different types of things, as well as hemp plastics to start working on getting rid of our plastic problems. So this is in conjunction with the Biden administration, how they look to move forward into renewable sources and and more uh, clean energy. And so we're looking to uh, assist companies with grant proposals. Um, We have partnered with the uh, Florida Hemp Council. And so they have a lot of experience in actually getting uh, a a grant approved. They've gotten three to four grants approved for clients. So we look to partner with them to assist companies in providing that funding 
And then those studies would be done theoretically in this new hemp and cannabis research zone that we're discussing. That's amazing. So you, do you help these companies with these grant proposals? So, so right now we're at the we're at the, the phase where we're working with the counties called St. Lucie County, mm-hmm. and so we're developing what, what they call a public-private partnership. And there's a certain financing that goes along with that. That financing is typically um, bought or um, managed by the financial firms. One is um, Raymond James Financial is is a company that typically does public-private partnerships. So. Where we are right now is, is working on securing all the contracts needed for a public-private partnership. And then once that's secured, we'll be looking at somewhere between 50 and $60 million to really get the industrial research park off the ground. To where, so think of it more of a real estate type of deal up front. And then once we have, uh, have that secured, then we will work through companies to be able to lease space there. And while leasing space for headquarters or operations, we will work to them to be able to um, to get that grant funding. So what we're trying to do is set up more, more of like a one-stop shop to where eventually companies can come in, view our facilities, um, potentially write a lease, and then we can assist them with getting grant proposals, whatever project they want to pursue. Wow. Well, that sounds pretty awesome. And I could just imagine the collaborative effort once this is up and running, how much faster we can make the progression to, to a lot of these products and uh, the data that you're going to receive from... <laughs> You're you're absolutely right, Anthony, because what we see is the challenge that we see is that we just need a place to get started because Mm -hmm. in the the global economy, and I've been doing this in in cannabis and hemp for over eight years now, and so you start to see major trends around the world, and the number one trend is there's no communication. You know, Mm -hmm. one, one group doesn't know what another group's doing, and so a lot of people are keep reinventing the same wheel. And so our goal is if we can bring all these groups together and really facilitate university uh, programs coming in. One of the big things we're pushing is to to be able to have universities come there to the research zone and offer internships to where they can manage these projects and these students can get real-world education. Because education is going to be critical moving forward in cannabis and hemp because we really have to train the next generation to move these industries into a more professional manner. Yeah, absolutely. And talk about training the next generation. Are you seeing some young uh, kids in in high school or college being interested in this industry? We are, and um, I typically I try to uh, uh, help as many universities as possible. Uh, for example, I've I've been working with the University of Maryland Masters of Science in Cannabis Therapeutics program, which is just created. They're having their first graduation class to May, and so I'll be speaking at their virtual graduation. But uh, we try to assist as much as we can. Um, what I do find is a lot of business students uh, coming out of college are interested. So. I've done speeches with James Madison University, University of Cincinnati. I mentioned University of Maryland, a couple of private schools down here in Florida. So my goal is to expose uh, students to this industry and let them understand what this is as well as what it is not. Mm-hmm. And so I think you're seeing a lot of interest in this. But the challenge, what I see is people want to get into the industry, but they either don't know how or they don't know what they need to do to be able to get into the space. Yeah, I totally agree. So, so what kind of recommendations would you have for those people that want to get into the industry? They don't know how or what to do to get into the space. Uh, LinkedIn, LinkedIn, mm-hmm. LinkedIn. <laughs> so, 
I get contacted. If people don't know, I'm the most followed cannabis professional in the world on LinkedIn. Yes. 90% of my referrals come through LinkedIn. So mm-hmm. I talk to a lot of people through there. I would recommend follow people like me. I'm unable to do any new connections because I've reached the connection maximum. But I encourage people to follow me and learn. I encourage these students to go to trade shows, to talk to people, to let people know they're interested because there's no real database, I guess you'd say, to mm-hmm. where you can use that. Also, I would recommend to go through headhunters who are focused on the cannabis and hemp space because those people, as people coming out brand new out of college, um, they're very desirable in the fact that a lot of the hemp and cannabis jobs don't pay what other people are used to making. So for me, I'd rather have a brand new graduate and I'm going to pay them, say, forty dollars or $50,000 out of college. I can train them how I want them, what I want them to do, rather than bringing somebody else in who's making $250,000 for uh, a position that they're used to uh, a set amount of benefits, they're used to a certain amount of uh, uh, vacation and all these different services that that corporations who have been established for long periods have. People who are trying to get into the business need to understand most of these companies are startups, and so there's going to be a little bit of risk, and also there's not going to be the consistency in the day-to-day that a lot of people are used to. One of the things that I see as an issue is people who come from different industries are used to a certain amount of professionalism because those industries have been around for hundreds of years, whether it be nursing, medicine, business, finance, and then they come into the cannabis or hemp space and they assume that it's the same way. And I try to dispel those, those rumors and say, no, it's not the same way. And most of these companies are startups, even if they're on the publicly traded exchanges, there's going to be challenges with these companies due to the fact that cannabis is still illegal. And then in industrial hemp, we just haven't gotten to the point of being able to do mass scale yet to where there's not enough money in the system yet to be able to support the the prices or, or the salaries that people are used to in more, um, um, uh, uh, more traditional industries. Yeah, absolutely. Now, what what are kind of your predictions as far as how many years is it going to take before we, you know, really start, um, you know, moving this train along? Uh, which one? Industrial hemp, medical the, cannabis? The industri- industrial hemp, you know, more for our okay. plastics. Well, industrial and hemp, I think we're starting to see, um, I don't know if you guys have noticed, but what I've seen talking to people around the world is climate change is a huge issue not just in this country, but in every country. Mm-hmm. And what we're starting to see is more willingness to put money behind new technologies. So I feel 2021 is going to be a very good year, probably not for mass um, adoption of product, but I see 2021 being a very good year for research and development and investment into figuring out um, these systems. And so we we started to see uh, companies look to go to more um, natural products. One of, one of the, the things that I've seen already is um, I was working with, uh, I was dis- discovered an algae company outside of Tampa, Florida. They are actually making algae to be used as fertilizer for plants. And they've done a, a preliminary study on hemp, and they have found using algae um, can increase the growth of hemp plants by 30%. And so we are looking at these new technologies for the growth of hemp as well as cannabis. And also for me, what we focus on is dealing with with regulations all over the world. And so I like the idea of using algae because algae is 100% organic. 
and mm-hmm. it can pass any type of test in a, in a country because most of these countries in Europe are very limited in what you can use as a as a herbicide or insecticide or fertilizer. So mm-hmm. algae can can help help uh, do all those types of things. It can make your plant stronger, have a better yield. And so that technology is starting to come on. So what we're starting to see is renewable technologies or agriculture that one can help the other and can help the other. And so that's what what I start to see in 2021 is is the starting point, I guess you'd say, for mass production or mass acceptance. So we're just getting there in 2021, and I'll see that continuing after that. Well, and that's good to hear, too, because, you know, I think that we can all agree that we're seeing this climate change happen throughout the world. And one thing... I haven't seen, which, you know, I don't know if maybe you've seen something different is there isn't a lot of focus being put on hemp as that resource that could help solve that problem. There's focus being put on so many other aspects when we have something so simple like this that could really propel us forward. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about that? I'm seeing the same thing. Yeah. And a lot of the reasons I think, Nicole, is... Um, hemp just has a bad reputation due to cannabis. Mm-hmm. That's the only thing that, that typically I see. Um, you look at countries like India, China has really taken the lead with hemp. But a lot of people don't trust the hemp coming out of China. Mm-hmm. India is trying to get into the game with hemp. I've talked to a lot of groups there who want to sell me CBD isolate and distillate out of India. Um, by the way, the best isolate and distillate and, and hemp products come out of the United States. So okay. anybody listening and the challenges is because because the United States, believe it or not, is one of the things that I've learned going around the world is the United States is the entrepreneurial capital of the world, and a lot of the other countries look to the United States to develop different markets. And so, since the United States has taken a back seat in doing um, anything hemp and cannabis related due to, due to being illegal, then the rest of the world has has not moved forward. And one of the things that we've noticed in uh, Europe is that with medical cannabis, Germany has taken the lead because America is not in the game, basically. And mm-hmm. so Germany has come out with regulations that most of the world is following in, in regards to production and how you do production and compliance. And so it's, it's, it's good, but it's also bad because now Germany is kind of making the world follow their model where the United States model is more open and it encourages more growth in a, in a faster way. And so this is what I'm, that, that's one of the challenges that we see with hemp and cannabis where as the U.S. starts to take a bigger lead in the space, you're going to start to see the global economies of can- cannabis and hemp start to increase. And I think you all have seen that as mm-hmm. this past year has gone on with, with the Biden administration getting elected you're starting to see this uh, excitement in the markets about cannabis specifically, but that is bleeding over into hemp, and that's exactly what we need. We need that excitement. Um, and so what we're hoping for is some some uh, movement on the Biden administration on medical cannabis, whether it be decriminalization or whether it be the, the SAFE Act to go through for banking, because either of those is, is going to help the hemp industry move forward as well. Now, can you share with us a little more about what the SAFE Act is? So Safe Banking Act basically allows banks and financial institutions and merchant processors to work with, with cannabis-based uh, based companies that have THC products, specifically Delta 9. Um, so what that would do is currently um, banks can work with, um, with cannabis-related businesses. However, um, it's only through a memo that was done in 2014 by FinCEN, which is the Financial Crimes and Enforcement Network. 
So a memo is not a law, and it was a guideline on how you deal with uh, uh, cannabis banking, and you have to follow AML, which is anti-money laundering, and KYC, which is know your customer. So there are companies, I'm, I'm on the uh, advisory board for a company called Integrated Compliance Solutions, and they are currently the largest merchant processor and bank compliance software company in the United States for cannabis and hemp-related businesses. So what this Safe, Inc., Safe, Act, uh, Safe Banking Act would do would it allow all these major financial institutions to provide loans, to provide lines of credit, and not just banking, not just a, a bank account to companies. And so what that would do is it would decrease the cost of, of money, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So rather than having to pay 20 to 25% interest on a, a venture capital or private equity line of credit or loan, now we can get down into reasonable terms of maybe five, six, seven percent. So the cost of capital goes down, which allows more companies to come into the space. Yeah, that would be fantastic because I mean, you know, you have these companies that want to come in, but the banking makes it very, very challenging. Well, the illegal, federally being federally legal doesn't help. No, so, no, I tell people, <laughs> absolutely not. Know, People tell me so. We we have raised uh, we have raised almost a million dollars to do a medical cannabis license in the state of Florida. Well, the state of Florida currently has um, uh, the, the there's a case holding up the new applicants, and this case is all the way at the Florida Supreme Court, and it's taken over three years. Wow. So I tell people, you know, some people say, well, well, how come you guys haven't moved forward? And I said, well, because we can't because of the litigation. But but I tell people, I said, imagine how thinking how tough it is to raise money in general. Now try to raise money for an illegal business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> we know how that works. You know, I wanted exactly, to, exactly. I wanted to shift over. Well, this, this, I think this will tie into a lot of what we were talking about, but something I learned on one of your podcasts that I listened to the other day was the three Patterson pillars. So can you share what that is with us? I would be happy to. So, um, after doing this for so long, I started noticing a lot of, um, a lot of trends in the industry, specifically in regulated programs with medical cannabis. And so if you're unfamiliar about over 35 states now have medical cannabis and every single state has different law rules and laws in that state. So I like to tell people is, is that, uh, America is kind of like Europe in the fact that every state is like a different country when it comes to cannabis laws. So what I've noticed is uh, there's three pillars of the, the economy or laws that need to balance in order for uh, a cannabis system to flourish, and those are public safety, patient access, and commerce. So public safety deals with um, how many, uh, what, what are the ramifications for a doctor being able to pres- pres- uh, prescribe or recommend cannabis? How many facilities are, are you going to allow to be able to um, come in and, excuse me, hold on a second. Uh, how, how many companies are you going to be able to come in and, and come into that industry? How many licenses are you going to allow? Are you going to allow 5,000? Are you going to allow three? Um, and so that's going to depend on, on the public safety. And so patient access or, or um, consumer access is, uh, again, how many stores are you going to allow? How easy is it to get stores? Um, is it super easy or super easy to get into the business? How, how easy is it for patients to sign up to get a marijuana recommendation? You know, these are the, the questions that people don't think about. And then commerce is goes back to stores. How easy is it to provide, uh, to, to have a store? How easy is it to for companies to come in? How easy is it for banking to work in that state? And so let me give you a few examples to kind of see how this works. So in regards to, um, to commerce and, and patient access, 
the state of West Virginia waited two years. They, they passed a law legalizing medical cannabis in 2017. But what they did is they, they hid behind um, commerce and public safety because they said, well, we don't have a bank in the state has, that has been willing to um, take any of these businesses. So we're not going to move forward with this law until we can find a bank. So they wasted two years, and they finally, in 20, uh, 2019, they finally passed it to where they found a bank to do that because they said commerce would not be, a, be able to, to happen. Mm-hmm. Another example of this is the state of Oklahoma. So the state of Oklahoma has no limit on the number of licenses. So currently in the state of Oklahoma, there's over 10,000 licensed cannabis businesses, and there's only 4 million people. So with that, you, typically what you look at medical cannabis is 2 to 3% of the population will qualify for medical cannabis at any given time. So you have, you have 4 million people in 10,000 licensed businesses, and so there's approximately 300,000 patients who are in Oklahoma. So if you take, you know, you, you take um, 300,000 divided by 10,000, that's not a lot of customers. Mm-hmm. So what happens is you have all this commerce, which, which limits public safety because well, the, the rules and requirements are all you have to do is, is pass the background check, uh, be an Oklahoma resident, and pay $3,500. So what we've seen in Oklahoma is that there's way too much commerce, which leads to bad public safety because places are getting robbed. They're not using a seed-to-sale program. A lot of illegal product is coming into the, the system. And then with patient access, patient access is way too easy because there's no qualifying conditions. All you have to do is go to one doctor, and he says, that, you know, I stubbed my toe, and he can give you a marijuana recommendation or a medical cannabis recommendation. So that is the situation or an example where there's too much commerce, which affects public safety, and there's too much patient access, which inhibits public safety. And then you go to another extreme, which is my state of Florida. Florida has 22 million people and only has 22 licensed cannabis businesses. Oh, my goodness. So commerce is limited which increases the cost for the patient. So patient access is somewhat limited because of the cost of the medication. Currently right now, flour, retail flour sales go for about $15 a gram in Florida. Where in Oklahoma, the same price of flour will probably be 8 or $9 a gram for the same product. So it does make a big difference. And then um, the, the patient access is also limited because there's only about 12 diagnoses that people can qualify for. And so public safety is, is strong in Florida because there's limits on the amount of, com- of commerce and there's limits on, on the amount of patient access. So it's a, it's a more balanced system, but I think the best system you could look at in the United States right now is Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is very balanced because they have, for commerce, they allow 25 uh, 25 grower processor licenses and 150 dispensaries, and they have a population of about 14 million. Their patient access is fairly decent because they have over almost 17 qualifying diagnoses. And then public safety is good because they put the barriers in for, to, to make sure that people who apply have background checks um, and they have certain other checks that they put in. So that system typically works well, and, and the proof in the pudding of that is Pennsylvania started in 2018, started taking patients, and they were the fastest state to get to 200,000 medical cannabis patients. They got there, and I think in less than two years. So it's interesting to see how the, the, the Patterson Pillars, when you plug those in, you can literally read a state law, and you can find out after reading that state law pretty quickly whether that state uh, people can make money in that state or not. Because what I tell people as investment, I said the regulatory structure of the state will determine your profitability. Mm-hmm. So you need to understand what, what company you're investing in and what state they operate in. 
in order to determine if they can make money. So now do you offer this kind of service if somebody comes to you and says, you know, Michael, I want to, I want to start a grow operation or, or a dispensary in Oklahoma. What are your thoughts? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, first of all, I'm extremely upfront with them. Um, we've actually worked with um, uh, multiple, multiple groups to, to do application for licensure. And we've, out of 10 applicants, we've had nine of those applicants who won licensure. So we're very mm-hmm. familiar with this program and how to do it. So it's very complicated, and it's, it's something where people don't understand that, you know, they just think, oh, okay, I can apply for a license, and it's $3,500. Well, yeah, it depends on the state. For example, in Florida, um, people were raising a million dollars just to apply for a license with no guarantee of winning. And people say, well, why is it so expensive? And I was like, because you have to be the best. Uh, say, in, in Florida, they would have probably the next application phase. They're probably going to have 110 applicants for five, maybe 10 spots. Wow. And they have to pay for every application? Well, it depends. You don't have to, but if you Mm -hmm. want to win. So, for example, in the state of Florida, the application fee alone is $50,000. Holy moly. And the reason they do that, they do that to weed out, no pun intended, um, a lot of applicants. Uh (laughs) So then they want to go through who is the best applicant. And the best applicant has to have the best of everything. You typically have to have the most financial backing. You have to have the best people in the industry. You have to have the best compliance program. You know, so these are all the things you have to do. And to do that, you need to bring in a lot of people who understand how to do this. Just like if you were going to go for a Medicare or Medicaid license in the healthcare world, you typically will bring in a consulting firm to help you with that application process. And cannabis is no different. And I tell people, if you want to win, then you got to pay the money because I said, it's not going to help you if you pay a hundred grand and lose. Why don't you go ahead and pay 500,000, get the best team, and you have a, a very high chance of winning um, because people, people look at things differently. And so once you've been in the game this long, you understand what the regulators are going to want for an applicant. Awesome. And you do this all throughout the U.S. and abroad as well, correct? Mm-hmm. Abroad, mm-hmm. so we just it, abroad is actually a little bit easier. Um, so it depends on the country, but typically uh, licenses can be purchased, or um, you can come in and do a license for application. But in a lot of these countries, they um, there's not a lot of applicants because one of the things that people may not realize is anytime you start a new cannabis program, whether it's a country or a state, it typically takes about two to three years to get that to get that program off the ground and actually have product leaving your country or sales, you know, generating sales in a country. So that is something where people may not understand and, and you need a lot of money to do that. I use the expression as you need enough money to get to the starting line, not the finish line, because in cannabis, if you win a license, it's going to take you at least 12 to 18 months to actually get to the point where you can open if it's a cultivation or processing license. Mm. Yeah. It's, <laughs> there's a, there's a lot of moving parts getting into to cannabis. Um, now is this, do you find that, you know, a lot of these licensing issues and challenges come within the um, cannabis space or in the industrial hemp space or both, you know, for growing for fiber and whatnot? Well, typically, uh, industrial hemp space is super easy to get involved in. Mm-hmm. The challenge is it, there's, there's pitfalls on the other side, meaning um, say you get into industrial hemp and you are going to make the best, you know, hemp for clothing. Well, to do that, you really have to get a supply order before you even start. Because mm-hmm. one of the challenges that we see in industrial hemp is people just going out and growing industrial hemp, and then they don't have a buyer. Mm-hmm. So 
creating that network is you literally have to create the entire network of buyer, seller, and everything before you start. That's where a lot of people I've seen have, excuse me, have not uh, cracked that code because they want to get into industrial hemp. Maybe they'll grow an acre uh, or, or just get it and, and kind of get into it and learn. So what we always suggest is if you want to get into industrial hemp, we always encourage them. If you want to be a cultivator or a grower, you need to start growing one or two acres and know you're never going to sell that and you're going to lose money because you need to go through a, a season to see how it grows and understand it enough to know what you can provide for a long-term contracted partner. For example, um, we have been working with a group out of uh, Honduras who has been growing hemp and then um, processing it for Levi's jeans in order for Levi's to make a hemp-based gene. The problem with hemp-based genes is there's not enough industrial hemp to be able to, to meet the demand for a company like Levi's. So in order to make enough industrial hemp to, for, for a company like Levi's, you need to have investors and put in a lot of money. Well, to do that, you have to have a purchase order from Levi's to, to be able to back up the investment that the investors are paying in. So you see what I'm saying? Yeah, so absolutely. It's one of those things where the, the small growers are, have a difficulty. So what I see happening down the road is a company like ours or working through uh, other companies, we would go out and work with Levi's to get a purchase order, and we would do it in reverse. We would go to industrial hemp cultivators and say, okay, guys, I got a contract. I need you and 500 other, other, uh, uh, 500 other farmers to create this amount of biomass and then we will bring it to a processing plant to be processed. So that is the thing that we're trying to work on from a global scale. Um, also, what we're trying to work on is get industrial hemp projects running outside the U.S. and be able to import products into the U.S. for final processing. For example, mm. if we could create the hemp cotton in South Africa for Levi's and we can ship it into processing plants in North Carolina who do a lot of textiles and they make the shirts and they make everything else or the jeans – or to San Francisco, wherever they make them, then everybody wins. So these are the things that we're trying to do. And one of the things I've learned is, for example, in South Africa, they have zero tariffs with the United States on textiles. Nice. So I never would have known that unless I got into yeah, it. Yeah, right. So these, these are the things that you learn as you get into it. And then as you go down this road, you start to realize, oh, I need an expert in this. I need an expert in that. And that's where LinkedIn comes in because all these people typically follow me and so I can literally just reach out and get an expert in a multiple different fields who would be interested in collaborating or potentially hiring or so forth and so on. And that's why I go back to the power of LinkedIn, because uh, everybody in the space pretty much agrees that LinkedIn is the social media platform for cannabis and health for the planet. Mm -hmm. We've made we've made a lot of connections through LinkedIn. I think, you know, Anthony connected with you through LinkedIn. So. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. It's a great place to reach out. Well, now, what do you know about the Fortune? There's some Fortune 500 companies that they've kind of committed to lowering their carbon footprint. Um, have you heard about any of those those companies and say anything yeah, about, on that? You're, you're, I don't know specifics, but it, it's definitely a trend that, that, is in, uh, that is moving forward. The challenge is, for the hemp industry specifically, is we really need to get to the point where we can offer services for these companies in order for them, for, for the hemp industry to move forward. For example, if I'm a, a Fortune 500 company, I'm Google, whoever, well, it doesn't help to say, hey, we can build you an entire new uh, eco-friendly facility made out of hemp and, and concrete and everything where you don't have the capacity to do that. Right. 
You know what I'm saying? So that is the challenge is that we need to get the industry to where we can provide these services for these companies because what I see happening in the future, not just here but around the world, is um, customers are going to be very uh, a lot more conscious in what they buy based on what companies are doing to help save the planet mm-hmm. and working for their employee, working with their employees and benefiting their employees and other people and so forth and so on. So I think it's going to be more rather than a corporate mandate. I think it's going to be a mandate to be successful in business moving forward. Um, and we're seeing this not just here, but around the world. So I think um, cannabis is coming in, specifically hemp and industrial hemp is coming in at a good time, but we really need to bring the technology in so companies can offer these services to these other groups. And one of the things that we're very bullish on is hemp, um, hempcrete to be able mm-hmm. to make 3D printed homes. Um, yeah. If you haven't seen, uh, the listeners, if you haven't seen that there's a couple companies starting to do a 3D printed home in America for sale. And so what we want to do is start working with industrial hemp concrete because or hempcrete, because most of these companies, if you haven't seen the videos, are fascinating. They're building the walls and everything with two people in two days. They That's don't need crazy. a whole crew. They don't need any of that. And the cost of production has gone down dramatically. So typically, they actually make the concrete on site. So imagine being able to get to the process where we could have enough uh, hempcrete to where we can develop that on site. And so what we do, and we take these technologies and think about a grand scale. And one of the things we want to do in Africa is work through the United Nations as well as the World Bank to be able to go into countries and build homes for, say, three or 4,000 U.S. dollars that are, say, 800 square feet, and we can pump out one or two houses a day and do that on a regular basis. And so these are the ways that we try to think that way industrial hemp uh, specifically can help because in Africa, a lot of things are imported. So if we can grow hemp in Africa and turn around and make houses out of hemp there, then we're, we're using the natural resources to stay in Africa. And then eventually over the other time, what we want to do is be able to build, uh, make building materials in Africa and sell them throughout Africa as well as other countries. They probably won't come back to the United States because it's just too, too uh, expensive to ship. But we would work on that technology to be able to do that in the United States as well. Yeah, exactly. You can take that technology and just repeat it here. You've, once you've mm-hmm. made, exactly. yeah, yeah, once you made the perfections. Yeah, I, re- I really love that. I haven't, I haven't heard of the 3D printed home yet. I'm sure probably Anthony has. He, he ends up doing more stuff than I do. But um, I really love that idea because whenever I think about hempcrete homes, I think about the health and well-being not only of the planet but of the individual living in the home and how sick people are with the building materials and the mold and everything else. And from a health standpoint, it, I think it's just a fantastic thing. Well, and I agree with you because, it, especially in my state of Florida, uh, mm-hmm. mold is a major issue, and concrete, believe it or not, can grow mold. Mm-hmm. Um, so hempcrete is, is mold-resistant, and it's fireproof. Believe yeah. it or not, concrete yeah. in its current form can burn. And also, um, one of the things we're having as a society is we're having a sand shortage because of concrete. So mm-hmm. if we could start using hempcrete to be able to make those, and then also think about for hurricanes, if you do a 3D printed home, you can make the walls as thick as you want. Yeah. So talk about temperature control and be able to withstand Category 5 storms. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's great because then you can design homes in a different way. You can do corners where you never could before. You can adjust the design on the fly, so to speak. And you can bring down the cost of owning a home 
And as as we've seen in the past year, how home prices have mm-hmm. skyrocketed, a lot of people have been uh, costed out of the, the market. And so if we can start using 3D printing for a lot of different issues, and that's one of the grant proposals that we would push is because the government is supposed to do things for, for the, the people that they cannot do themselves. And that's what, what Abraham Lincoln said. And we feel the development of the in, uh, industrial hemp space is – uh, a, an imperative for the United States, not just for the government, but for the people, because we can create and dominate this entire global industry, creating thousands upon thousands of jobs and potentially millions or billions in tax revenue if we do this correctly. Because as I mentioned before, the world looks to America to innovate. And so mm-hmm. since America has been on the sidelines, they've depended on other countries, which just don't do as good of a job as the United States on innovation. Yeah, I love. I just love everything you just said. I mean, I think that that's it's so important moving forward is to just really remove that stigma, so then we can start moving forward in this industrial hemp space. And you know, I mean, there's so much we could do across the globe with the environment and health and everything just by this one plant. So, and, and I agree. The challenge is this education. If, if you guys yes. saw the report that came out last week, it said I think 70 percent of America don't know the difference between THC and CBD. Nope. And so I, yep. this is where we are in the world, you yep. know. So how do we expect them to know the difference between hemp and cannabis? Exactly. And I know we're we're on the road traveling, and we talk to people all the time. And you know, Anthony is really good at breaking the ice, and he'll bring it up and start talking about it. And people have no idea. And when you start to tell them all the different right. things that you can do with a hemp plant, it, it you can see the wheels turning behind behind their eyes, and they're they become very intrigued. So. Mm-hmm. It's nice to see and that. And I see that, that with, with uh, what I do. And, and so I used to have people, um, when I started out eight years ago, I would tell people what I do. And, and I had one occasion where a lady literally put her child behind her legs to oh protect gosh. that child once I told them. <laughs> 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 so now it's so funny because now I tell people what I do. And they're like, oh, really? That sounds so cool. Wow, that's great. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, the, uh, the the public perception is changing, but but that's one of the reasons I'm so active on LinkedIn, and I encourage anybody to listen listening to please follow me on LinkedIn. It's Michael Patterson, U.S. Cannabis mm-hmm. Pharmaceutical Research and Development, is to educate, and I educate as much as I uh, I can because we need professionals around the world to understand more how this industry works. Because one of the things I hear after people start following me is. Oh, I didn't realize this is so such a big industry. I didn't realize this. I didn't realize that. And I'm like, well, good. That's why I'm glad you're following me because there's a lot of people who need to understand what this is in order for it to grow and for them to come into the industry. Because we, I feel like a lot of us in this space are the tip of the spear and we need to guide others to come into this space to help. Because I can tell you right now, I don't want to do all of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have no desire to do all of it. <laughs> Right. I mean, it's just too much. And I want to bring in an army. I call the uh, my followers um, the uh, compassionate army, bringing people in who are drawn to the plant for whatever reason um, and, and educate them and show them the way. Because once you can open up their eyes and connect the dots, it's just so exhilarating because now they take on that, that role and they follow your mission or push your mission forward through their knowledge and you get better results. Well, and that leads me to your podcast. Uh, you know, you're doing this on your podcast. Will you share with our listener about your podcast and what they can expect? Sure. Yeah. 
So our podcast uh, is called The Cannabis Report with Michael Patterson. So you can go to YouTube and just type in The Cannabis Report with Michael Patterson. Please subscribe. Um, our goal of the, of the, the podcast is to educate uh, people about the industry and also have fun because our, our, uh, our format is edutainment. So we typically start with uh, news of the day, cannabis news, and my identical twin brother is the, pro- uh, the producer. And so uh, we have a good time, put it that way. So you can look at both of us and see what's different, what's not. Um, <laughs> and then uh, I, he goes through the news, and then I analyze the news because why are you going to care if Germany tried to legalize recreational cannabis? How does that affect you in Wisconsin or Mississippi or wherever? So I try to connect those dots, and then we bring on a um, uh, somebody, uh, an executive or somebody active in the space, a professional, and then we usually uh, finish up with an entrepreneurial tip of the day for people looking to get into the space and what you need to do, as well as a champion of the week. And the champion of the week is usually somebody who in the industry who is doing something as an advocate or something else that really doesn't generate any money and really help promote what they're doing because – what people may not realize is all these advocates have gotten us to where we are today and we need to help them mm-hmm. in their push to make things legal around the world. Yep. Yep. So Michael, I want to ask you so, what, go ahead. Did you had something else to say? I would just say, so we typically post a new episode every other week. Okay. So uh, as of Wednesday, April, tw- April 14th, we'll have our next issue coming up. And then uh, we have one, uh, uh, an episode that's going to come out probably in June where it's a, a, um, a show called High Valley Hemp, and it's based out of Colorado, and they're currently getting ready to sign a deal with either Netflix or Discovery Channel, and that should be coming out. And we had a very good podcast with them, so we will be putting that out when we know which network they're going to be on. And they came in the studio, and we just had a really, really good time. Nice. I think I've looked some stuff up about them, so I'm, I'm intrigued to hear this one for sure. So I want to ask you one last question. If cannabis was never criminalized, what would the industry look like today? That's a very good question. Um, I think, and and, and it brings me to an issue because um, on LinkedIn, I posted something and a guy said, well, you know, it's not fair. This was illegal. And, you know, all these different excuses. And I responded with, yeah, but if it wasn't illegal, then right now where we would be is the pharmaceutical industry would dominate cannabis. Mm -hmm. There would be no entrepreneurs in the space. Mm -hmm. Um, It would just be another Fortune 500 issue, uh, a global issue, to where everybody would be locked out of the system. And I think industrial hemp would have moved along a little bit quicker. But again, I think that system would have been dominated by bigger companies, building companies, so forth and so on. So uh, to me, I'm very optimistic, and the reason it was illegal um, was for a lot of um, you know discrimination, actually. But mm-hmm. the fact that it was illegal has allowed for people like me, you, and others to actually get into the space. And I also remind people, as um, one one person said, "Well, I don't want to get into cannabis because it's too crowded or like it's, it's too involved." <laughs> and my response was that we're still in prohibition. So mm-hmm. I don't understand why you say it's it too evolved. So I think that was just an excuse. But I think if cannabis was legal right now, I think none of us on the, would be doing be in the cannabis space right now. Yeah. And I actually, I love that perspective because that, that is not a perspective that we've gotten yet from anyone that we've interviewed. So gosh, that, that's awesome. Yeah. That's a good thing. It, it's a great perspective. I mean, everyone, ha- we all have our dreams of what it would look like if it wasn't criminalized, but, you know, going from that aspect where, you know, we have all these big corporations and whatnot that rule everything. And then, yeah, you're right. More than likely that would be the case if it wasn't ever criminalized and we wouldn't have this awesome space to go to now. So it's, it's an entrepreneurial dream, entrepreneur's mm-hmm. dream. And so, 
you know, for, and, and another thing I would encourage people to do, if you're interested in getting in the space, focus on what you know. Don't worry about what you don't know. And mm-hmm. what, I, what I mean by that is if you're an accountant, focus on cannabis accounting. If you're a financial advisor, focus on advising companies about, about uh, cannabis investment. If you're a doctor, focus on prescribing medication. You know, focus on what you know. And so what I know is healthcare regulation. I run nursing homes, pharmacies, labs, um, home health companies. And so I'm very familiar with a very litigious regulated markets. And I felt like that would work very well in cannabis because cannabis is evolving into a highly regulated market. So for me, I can literally predict the future because if I can bring a team together and focus on the highest regulated industry of pharmaceuticals now and make a cannabis company or hemp company follow those standards now, then I'll never have to look over my shoulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. So Michael, can you um, tell our listener where they can find you? Best place to find me is on LinkedIn, and it's Michael Patterson, U.S. Cannabis Pharmaceutical Research and Development. Um, you have to follow me um, just because I've reached my maximum limit, and then you could always direct message me on LinkedIn uh, if you'd like to. And then also keep an eye out. Um, I should be uh, being on uh, coming on TV probably in the next three or four months. Um, I have a publicity team to kind of get me on. With my goal is bringing awareness to the business side of cannabis. And the medical side is great, but I really want to – educate uh, people about the business side and get more awareness going so we can bring more people into the space. Nice. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael, for being on our podcast today. We really appreciate our listener for tuning into the Hemp Empowerment Project, where our goal is to share the amazing opportunities within the hemp industry and how it can change your life. Please subscribe to the podcast so you're always in the know.